0: Architects do nothing but inside theory. Peter Sloterdijk in conversation with Sabine Kraft and Nikolaus Kuhnert. Mr Sloterdijk, in your spheres trilogy you attempt to sketch a philosophical theory that conceives space as a central category. Why? because human beings themselves are an effect of the space they have been able to create. All previous generations were aware to some extent that humans do not camp out in nature. The camps of prehistoric humans already began as a minimal structure based on distance, which shows that beings like us live under a particular spatial principle of assembly. The oldest camps date back over a million years, far beyond the prehistory of Homo sapiens. They show that the whole of human development can only be understood in relation to the secret of spatial construction for anthropogenesis. This monster of a book, with its two and a half thousand pages, should actually be called Being and Space, rather than Spheres. But the times for working on ontological theory are over, so I have settled for something more contemporary for a constructivist and anthropological style of theory. The third volume of your trilogy contains a detailed discussion on architecture that includes the sections Cell Building and Foam City. The chapter as a whole is titled Indoors, Architectures of Foam. It is not clear from the discussion where you chose that title, Indeed, why can't we simply carry on with the old cosmology that was built on the equivalence of the house and the world? For that very reason, the whole of classical metaphysics is a figment of the imagination based on an implicit theme that is only openly revealed in a few places, such as in the work of Hegel and other authors. It says that the world is like a house, and that human beings are not only mortals, but also people who live in dwellings. In other words, humans are fundamentally creatures that reside. Their relationship to the world as a whole is a relationship of residence. The question is, why does modernist thought depart from this equivalence between world and house? Why do we need a new metaphor to describe the manner in which human beings establish themselves on their own spatial structures? And why do I propose the concept, foam, The answer is quite simply, because we no longer need a universal house, but rather a unité de habitation, a habitation unit, a conglomerate or stackable mass of habitable cells. The idea of the cell abides by the spherical imperative, but instead of the cells stacked in a house producing the classical form of world house, it produces foam Solid foam has a multiplicity of individual worlds. I emphasise the individualistic aspect of the self-construction of these cells with so much feeling, because the plural character of the cell conglomerate is important. For the early modernist architects, the quasi-metaphysical imperative of the new architecture, with its slogan, support the individual's need for world education, was obviously felt much more keenly than it is by their present-day counterparts, who have long since regarded it as self-evident. Is the collapse of the world house, or of the all-embracing sphere into foam bubbles an entropic image? Well, not only entropy is involved, but also negative entropy, what I call negentropy, because things are much more complex nowadays than was possible under the concept of unity. Let's not forget that metaphysics is the realm of great simplification, which explains its comforting effect. Where does this energy for this negative entropy come from? From the friction between the cosmoplastic plans, the world creating designs of individuals. In earlier times, individuals were much more heavily involved in the collective enterprise of creating something like a shared cosmos. Cosmos. You could say that the world picture itself had performed the function of a collector. Today we release the cosmoplastic energies of individuals and build up much more energy with them. The result is not easy to express as a totality. It cannot be represented as a rounded whole, like a huge ball of being of metaphysics, which was supposed to serve as a universal vessel, a container for everybody together. When we are sitting in foam, we cannot even imagine being able to see into the neighbouring cell. Explication. Explication is a figure of thought acts as a guiding thread all through the third volume of spheres. For example, in the introduction to Architectures of Foam, you write that the modern age makes dwelling explicit. What do you mean by that? Walter Benjamin, in his Arcades project, was the first person to attempt to depict an architectural form as historical philosophical phenomenon. This involves an idea connected with our theme of explication. Benjamin's great intuition consisted in looking, more intently than earlier generations of scientists had done, at that role that people of the 19th and 20th centuries played as creators of milieus, or even better, as creators of interiors. In other words, he saw the building of interiors as a timeless motif in the sense that human beings always have the need to construct an inside, an interior for themselves. At the same time, as a historical materialist, he wanted to emancipate this anthropological motif from its apparent timelessness. Consequently, he asked, what does the capitalist man do with his need for an interior? The answer was clear. He will use the most advanced contemporary technology to orchestrate the most archaic of all needs. He takes cast iron glass, the constructive possibilities of new pillar technology. His technique combines prefabricated elements. Paxton's Crystal Palace, with its famously short construction period of only eight months, represented the triumph of this technology. Arcades are such provocative structures for Benjamin, because the market, a type of space that had seemed until then to be the epitome of openness in the palace, is drawn inwards. Although markets built inside halls were an older trend, it was exciting and shocking for hermeneutic interpreters of capital like Benjamin that capitalism adopted the architectural possibility, firstly, of drawing the forum effect inwards, and secondly, of inverting the interior effect, that is, the salon, outwards. These two tendencies meet in the arcade. The citizen wants to bring the world, the cosmos, into his saloon. To some extent, he wants to impose the dogmatic form of the room onto the universe. From this perspective, he no longer wants to go out at all. Benjamin thought he could decipher the need to dispense with the outside world and the deepest interior of the capitalist dynamic. He was naturally projecting from his own personal structure, for real capitalists, in fact, are quite different from Benjamin's assumptions. They go outside, they are sea voyagers, and they flee from interiors. Benjamin lent an anthropological perspective to a piece of his own scholarly neurosis. But that is not our problem. The author's handicap turned out to be heuristically fruitful, because he could project exactly the point at which he could count on the cooperation of reality. In fact, that is always the fruitful moment, when reality is more neurotic than the neurotic person. It is enough to look through the lens of personal disturbance to identify the situation. Benjamin is a perfect example of this. In his own way, he felt the need of the capitalist man of private means to exist as a pure hothouse plant. Like that man, Benjamin wanted to bring the world inside and completely aestheticize it to satisfy his need for security and immunization. A passage in Corbusier's writings states that the choices between revolution and architecture he decided in favour of architecture. In your terms, it would mean he decided in favour of the explication of new living conditions. And then he no longer needed a revolution because revolution is only a false description of explication. In a wicked passage in the introduction of Sphere's Third, referring to Bruno Latour, I say this even more sharply. We were never revolutionary. Basically, the 20th century became almost completely trapped in its own linguistic games. We must remove two dangerous categories from its vocabulary. One is the concept of revolution, which only belongs in marketing nowadays and the other is the concept of masses, which is also no longer usable in an affirmative sense. If such a thing as an effective, so-called revolutionary, change of reality actually exists, then we will see it in the sense that a new technology develops the implications of something that is happening in life, transforming and propelling it forward in the process. In this respect, Corbusier was completely right. A technician always decides in favour of advancing technology. Everything that is successful is operative, and he or she is not really interested in the symbolic accompanying noises. People no longer ask which programmes will be announced, but which programmes will be written. This is the operative infiltration of existing conditions. Mere symbolic announcements have no effect at all but anything that promulgates and popularises hand movements and allows other people to make hand movements they have never made before has an impact. Modern apartments are full of technical gadgets that explicate life in the household, although now, rather than having grips which belong to the obsolete phase of tools with handles, these gadgets have buttons, for we have reached the world of fingertip operations. To return to Benjamin, Benjamin, Can we use the historical philosophical interpretation of contemporary architectural phenomena to retrace how implicit issues become explicit? Is this a kind of guiding theme of the spheres project? In this context, Benjamin is usually read as the hermeneutic analyst of capital, as somebody who discovered a coded script of reality in a parallel act of Freud, and who proposed a sort of dream interpretation of capitalism. Just as Freud propagated the interpretation of dreams of the individual soul, Benjamin promoted the dream interpretation of the money system. He left the aspect related to spatial philosophy in that background. Despite this, Benjamin evidently understood that behind every form of spatial creation is a problem of transference. Human beings are creatures who move house, who change to another space or even a different element. In other words, they move constantly from A to B, and if they are as they are, it is because they always bring with them the memory of another space in which they have been. Furnishing and decorating, producing spaces, is based on a difference. We cannot create an absolute space, nor a completely new one. Instead, we always create a differential space that is furnished in comparison to another space. Benjamin had understood that human individuals could have a unique transference dynamic. From this he deduced the fact that we are born as creatures equipped with a prenatal memory and a prenatal spatial remembrance. The constellation of woman and space cannot be entirely eliminated, even with the modern gynophobia. Whatever the architecture, the question as to how far the coding of an interior is feminine remains relevant in the sense that building serves the purposes of dwelling. To the extent that human beings operate as dwelling creatures, they move in an energy field where the creation of the interior is influenced by feminine transference. Intimacy. Is that the argument developed in spheres 1, bubbles? Spheres One is essentially devoted to exploring a powerful concept of intimacy, in an explicitly regressive movement. In this book, I approach the topic of being in, in reverse gear, so to speak. First, I look at the phenomenon of interfaciality. When human beings look at other human beings, it creates a non-trivial space, the interfacial space that we cannot interpret physically. It is useless for me to measure the distance between the tip of my nose and theirs with a tape measure. The interfacial relationship creates a completely unique type of spatial relationship. I describe the spatial relationship from the perspective of mother-child interfaciality and trace it back to the animal kingdom. My next step tries to interpret the images of the intercordial relationship that arises when humans interrelate so emotionally that two hearts create a resonance chamber together. The metaphorical factor becomes more important here. And then, I tiptoe around the most intimate relationship that exists because, from the perspective of the new life coming into the world, women are habitable. Women's bodies are dwelling places. Behind this shocking thesis, a natural history perspective emerges that I examine under the heading, The Egg Principle. As we know among birds and insects, and among the great majority of species, the fertilised egg, the carrier of genetic information, is laid in an outside environment that must have certain external characteristics of the uterus. At this juncture, something quite incredible happened in the evolutionary line that leads to the mammals. The body of the female specimen of the species was defined as the ecological niche of the species' own progeny. To some extent, that is a dramatic turn in evolution. We could say that a double usage of the female specimen occurs. Not only that she lays eggs, in which her role as an ovulation system wholly suffices for the definition of femininity, but rather that the eggs are laid inside her, and she is occupied as the ecological niche of her own progeny. This is how women became integral mother animals, Moreover, a kind of event arose that never previously existed in the world, namely, being born as a product of this total milieu. And because birth is a biologically ambitious event with ontological consequences, it is important to stick to this moment with the ultimate indiscretion. Does the transference of this primary fundamental experience seem to you to be an extremely virulent theme in spatial imagery? Absolutely. Because if we use the concept of transference from psychoanalysis, it is possible to ask how living creatures who carry the trace of being born will construct themselves. The answer will be that they will probably do it in such a way as to build a minimal trace of that archaic sense of being protected into their latter shells. We should note that transference evidently does not relate to feelings, nor to confused affects but to the process of spatial creation as a whole. The construction of casings for life generates a series of uterus repetitions in outside environments. This does not explain variations in spatial needs. Not all of them transmit the wish for archaic protection in this form. Many people feel extremely trapped in small spaces. There are the so-called cave dwellers and tree dwellers. Sphere's theory is not trying to explain everything. It is not a universal theory, but a detailed kind of spatial interpretation. Incidentally, one can also elucidate very different kinds of spatial types in terms of the prenatal perspective. Wide, oceanic spaces on the one hand, and hellishly tight ones on the other. As I have said, spheres one discusses microspherological phenomena. By microspherology, I mean the description of the effects of intimate space. They are always seen interpersonally, and I find the paradigm for this in the dyadic relationship. I show how we should actually conceive the dyad, and I trace it back to a prenatal, proto-intersubjectivity. I discover that the question is less about a mother-child relationship than about a child-placenta relationship. In other words, the original duplication occurred on a pre-personal level, and the mother only entered the picture later. After the deepest possible regression exercises through the discovery of the so-called psychoacoustic navel, my results are based on Alfred Tomatis and other authors who have worked in this delicate field. They describe the fetal ear as the organ of primary bonding. It is quite exciting for people who wish to believe it, but meaningless for those who do not accept the topic as valid. What does this mean in relation to a contemporary explication? What does explication in this context mean that we can detect implicit content with contemporary analytical tools? It is not only the analytical tools that give us access to specific elements of living relationships, such as dwelling working or loving it is not only a cognitive process that is in progress what we are dealing with here is a real process of working something out that can be understood simply with a form of expressive logic or production logic in this case of course i am in line with the tradition of marxist anthropology if it is true that we have to look at the whole of natural history to explain the formation of the human hand Then it follows that we have to consider the whole of cultural history to understand why we can do psychoacoustics today. Anyone who works anthropologically always has to try to date his or her own anthropological theses. This leads us to observe that everything Hegel and his contemporaries described as the phenomenology of mind, including a wildly over-optimistic teleological interpretation of process, can be written again as the history of explication. Not everything that exists implicitly becomes explicit. An explication will only relate to the parts of living relationships that have been developed by contemporary technology. For technology, and this is actually the book's basic assumption, is the attempt to replace naturally arising or religious and symbolic immune systems with explicit technical immune systems. If you want to replace something, you have to understand it better than a mere user does. If you want to make an artificial limb, you must precisely define the organ to be replaced. This takes you from the concrete function statement up to the general situation, and then back down again to the possible functional equivalent, which is just how functionalists work. They always start from the question, what does the system in its present form achieve, and what can we do instead? Architects understand that very well. What are the characteristics of the space formed by intimacy? What does it achieve? It is certainly a pre-geometric space. How can we replace it with technicalite methods? Architects would probably immediately have the associative idea we must build cosy corners. Now, that wouldn't be too far wrong. If we ask what a cosy corner represents in functional analysis, we arrive at the term primacy of the protecting atmosphere. And when we have recognised the primacy of the protecting atmosphere, in fact the primacy of the atmospheric factor at all, architects can deduce that they should not take geometric ideologies as their starting point. Instead, they should be thinking in terms of atmospheric spatial effects. Uh, that requires translation. After all, intimacy is first and foremost an intersubjective category that can be thought about or expressed in different spatial terms. I think of intersubjectivity as its own kind of spatial relationship. It took the first 700 pages of the Spheres Project, the entire first volume, to construct a non geometric, non physical concept of spatiality. Its strong characteristic is that, by being together, beings of the human type evoke the sense of reciprocal accommodation. An amorous couple provides a clear example. The lovers are already together in some way or another, and the question, your place, or mine, is actually secondary. Incidentally, this is a lovely example of an explication. The state of togetherness and going somewhere as people who are already together as the gestural explanation of what was already implicitly present by being together, but now emerges explicitly. This is also why spheres one included a theory of the bedroom, as well as a little theory of the bed, or of the anonymous self-completor. Balzac's theory of the bed is, to be precise, also a spatial theory. Do you refer to it? Unfortunately not, but I refer to other sources. In relation to the phenomenon of bed, what interests me most of all is the pillow and the eiderdown, because I want to show that there is a kind of intimate cohabitation that remains entirely within the pre-personal realm. Many people would rather divorce their spouse than part with their pillow. Human beings always set up an inconspicuous completer around them. The cultural history of sleep is itself a history of explication of those nocturnal self-completers with the aid of self-helpers, if you like, who are technically represented in the history. Covering oneself is a gesture of acknowledging oneself. It contains the quest for one's own unmistakable tight space that one sees as assisting sleep. Many people cannot fall asleep without a blanket covering them because they need this minimal completer to give the all-clear signal at night. Your book uses examples of two types of building, apartments and stadiums, to combine the results of different explication processes. Results not in the sense of a final outcome, but rather as a segment of a continuing process. This brings your discussion into the contemporary plane of architecture some intermediary steps are missing between the ontological grounding of a spatial theory as you developed it in spheres one, and its concrete establishment in historical, contemporary terms.